This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. show. Welcome back to All the Sins of Wisconsin. I'm Fallon and I'm here with Mims. How are you? I'm doing great. Just another cold winter day, but we're here and we're doing it. It's so cold. Yeah. Uh-huh. But we got like we got like a bit of a sunshine today, which I liked, but it was still like counteracted with all the coldness. What are you gonna do? We live in Wisconsin. <laughs> right yeah yeah okay well i think we discussed that we don't have anything going on for true crime news um so i think we're just gonna jump into it unless you have anything to add before we do that nope i'm ready to jump into it all right sounds good so I'm going to start with the case of Tom Munfield. Um, but this case has actually um, kind of been named the Munfield Six. And my sources are from munfieldscase.com. So yeah, this case has an entire website dedicated to it. So that's how, um, you know, intense it was. And I also got uh, more information from WBAY and Investopia. Um, so on November 10th, 1982, Tom uh, Munfield made a call to the Green Bay Police Department to report that Keith Kutska, uh, his co-worker, was going the steel scrap wire from the James River paper mill in Green Bay that they both worked at. So Keith was then suspended from work um, for a week as a result of that phone call. And on November 20th, Keith was able to get his hands on the cassette tape recording of Tom's phone call to the uh, police department somehow. I don't know how a civilian could have gotten that from the police department, but he, he did. Okay. Oh, really? That is crazy. Uh, okay. Um, Keith returned to work on November 21st and then confronted Tom with the tape. He was like, what is this? Why would you say that? Blah, blah, blah. And then Tom just flat out admitted that he made the call to the police. He's like, yep, I sure did. I made that call. That's me. Um, Then on November 22nd, 1992, Tom was found dead at the bottom of a pulp vat at that paper mill that they both worked at. 
Some sources stated that there was a 40 pound weight attached to a jump rope that was tied around his neck. However, not all of my research stated that. So it's kind of okay. a hit or, hit or miss with that piece of information. Okay. Uh, another thing that kind of made this suspicious is that the paper mill was a locked building with 24 hour security. However, nothing came out from that. Like, no, there wasn't any surveillance that was, you know, later on, um, you know, put into the trial that we're going to go into later. Like, nothing was said about that besides the fact that this building was had security and was on lockdown 24-7. So just thought I'd throw that out there. That's interesting, too. Yeah. So the Green Bay Police Department assumed Keith was the main suspect from the start. In fact, during the videotaping of the crime scene, an officer's voice, which I thought was really unprofessional, was heard off camera saying, quote, way to go, Kutska, end quote. From that point forward, the entire investigation centered around Keith. The police department on numerous attempts tried to hook the body and hoist it from the vat before finally removing it through an access portal near the bottom of the vat. So just, it, it must have been very hard to get him out and I can only imagine. Yeah. However, the police department failed to follow police work 101 by neglecting to cordon off the area with crime tape so officers and mill workers trampled through the crime scene left and right, just really, you know, muddying up the crime scene of, you know, just not doing good police work is what it came down to. Yeah. Unfortunately, Tom's investigation went nowhere for a year. Um, no one had any useful information and the police work was subpar. On January 4th, 1994, this case took a turn when Randy Winkler became the lead detective on the case. His 21-month investigation in which he claims to have conducted around 500 interviews produced unreliable results and witnesses statements that just added up to nothing. And when I say witnesses, I do it with air bunnies because of, it wasn't ever substantiated. It was just kind of, you know, hearsay, like, oh, well, I heard this, I heard that. Just like nothing was credible. Nothing mm. was backed. Just a and, bunch of rumors. Exactly. And one such statement included Brian Kellner's witnessing with air bunnies of a reenactment by Keith at the Fox Den bar of the supposed beating of Tom Munfields. So he, apparently this person said, yeah, I saw him at the bar. He was pretending to beat him, you know, just saying this is how it went down. But nobody else said that. It was only this Brian Kellner that stated that. And, you know, people be saying crazy things when it comes to wanting to be involved in crimes, you know, people call yeah. and say like, I did, I did the crime or like, I seen it. It was this man with the goatee, you know, but like, it wasn't. Yeah. It, people we just never love really to get know. involved. Exactly. 
So, however, there was never any physical evidence found at the paper mill crime scene, such as blood, blood residue. There wasn't any bloody knuckles on the supposed attackers or any instruments that was supposedly used to bludgeon Tom, which to me was extremely surprising. Right. But then I thought to myself, wait a minute, what if he was you know, murdered somewhere else and then dumped there, leaving minimal to no evidence at this particular crime scene. Um, That was just a thought. But that, I mean, that never was said in any media statements or by the police. That was just me thinking about that. So Dale Baston, Michael Hearn, Michael Johnson, Ray Moore, Keith Kutzka, and Michael... I'm going to butcher this last name, Piaski, were arrested in April of 1995, and their trial began in September. So District Attorney John Zakowski was permitted to try all six men together. Um, wow. So the DA Zakowski also established low expectations regarding to the case in general and its potential outcome. So the DA didn't have much confidence in pursuing this and that they would get a conviction, but they brought it to court anyways. So that that sounds about right. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, let's just, let's run it. You know, like, yeah. Okay. What's the worst that could happen? People could end up in jail. That's the worst thing that could happen. (laughs) So assistant DA Larry Lassie opened the trial by telling the jury, quote, if details are extremely important to you, you're going to be disappointed. There are gaps, end <laughs> quote. Like, how I love that. Start, <laughs> how do you start off a case on that? No, I'd be like, oh, no, I don't know if I want to sit through all this nonsense. Oh, my God, that's great. <laughs> I read that. I'm like, really? Okay. (laughs) I do appreciate the honesty. (laughs) Like if you want real facts, I can't give that to you. Yeah. So DA Zakowski also relied on the false testimony of a jailhouse snitch. And that would have been David Weiner, a coworker of Tom. David Weiner was also looking to cut a deal because at that time of the trial, um, he was in prison for reckless homicide and the killing of his own brother, which brings us back to an earlier point that you made in a previous episode in which you stated you don't completely agree with using jailhouse informants because they have Mm -hmm. their own motives. Yeah, all the time. This is a prime example of that. So even with all the gaps, missing details, and lack of hard evidence, on October 28, 1995, co-workers Dale Baston, Michael Hearn, Michael Johnson, Ray Moore, Keith Kutzka, and Michael Pisowski were handed life sentence convictions of first-degree intentional homicide. So... The jury just ran with it with the prosecution and was like, yep, they're going down. That's crazy. What kind of lawyer did they have? 
we're we're gonna get into that um okay because there's kind of you know like a weird fact to that so the sad irony about this case is that the most probable probable cause of tom's death was suicide and um there's a lot of things that people think that tied into that so something that may be of interest to our sinners is that of the 16 member jury only one of them had any education beyond high school maybe not entirely relevant but I don't know. I'm just That's an out interesting there. fact. Right. One juror admitted she couldn't tell the defendants apart after two weeks. Um, oh. So just, you know, the level of concern and um, attentiveness in this case was not of importance to many jurors. And I would like to say they're not all the same skin tones. So how could you not tell them apart is my yeah I was baffled by I, that I think the longer that trials go on the less the jurors pay attention which is brings me to my next point and on top of that other jurors were reportedly seen catnapping during the trial yeah yeah it's amazing how many times I've heard that in wrongful conviction cases that jurors were sleeping tell me why you can send throw something at them send people to serve time and take their lives away and you can just take a nap during all of the the facts that are mm-hmm. being put out there and all of the evidence that is being put out there like you're you could have missed a huge thing and how is nobody waking them up what are you doing so let's go into some of tom's behavior that was deemed to have caused his own death um this is what people are thinking that may have been sort of the suicide route that people think that took more precedence over him being murdered. Um, So Tom's coworkers didn't hate him or think that he was a bad person by any means. So he didn't have any bad blood besides this one incident where he did call the cops on his coworker and was like, hey, um, to me, I mean, people go after other people for far less. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know if somebody would just outright murder somebody for doing that. And especially since he went back to work, it's not like he was full on fired. Yeah. You know, he was only gone for a he week. Just, yeah. He just got a week off. Right. So, so they didn't hate him, but they did believe he had psychological problems. For example, when coworkers got arrested for DUIs, Tom would post the news clippings about them at work, complete with his own little notes written in the margins. So, <laughs> just like his own like little editorials of this DUI experience that his coworkers <laughs> would go through. Strange. I'm sure that they love that. Yeah, they were. They were thanks like, for telling everybody I got an OWI, and thanks for your commentary. Exactly. It's funny though. It's a little bit funny. Another instance was when he posted a news article along with his hurtful comments about the miraculous birth of a coworker's premature baby, which was completely inappropriate. But that's what he did. Yeah. On top of that out there behavior he was under enormous stress and that he he usually 
he used to freaking frequently tell co-workers about the many drowned suicide victims he had recovered while serving in the coast guard mm. and some people suggested that he may have been willing to take his own life due to the trauma of those events because they were just triggering him to present day yeah um like i said before nothing has said that he actually took his own life and when they took him out of the vat there wasn't anything stating that he died from this or that so it could have been an accident right it could have been an accident too but it was such a piss poor job that it's just not a lot of answers it's just more questions on questions yeah so here are some inconsistencies in the case that resulted in a less than a fair trial for the Munfield Six. Only one of their attorneys had previously worked on a capital murder case, so lack of experience may have played a role. Additionally, the attorneys were not permitted to pursue lines of questioning that the other attorneys had begun. The reasonings behind that is that they didn't want any potential overlapping, which was I don't know. I feel like that's... Why did they try six people at the same trial? So I'm actually going to go into that. Um, DA Sikowski... That's making me mad. (laughs) Yeah, I'll give you answers. Don't worry. (laughs) So DA Sikowski implemented the combined trial to save money and time. Did that make you feel any better? Not at all. (laughs) I wish that the audience could see the look on my face. Like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Yeah. Apparently I'm he glad had we're no... saving money. I know. How Apparently... much money does it cost to keep people in prison wrongfully for that's so true. Like we're gonna house these people if with this case that you're going to prosecute if it turns out the way that you want it to turn out, mm-hmm. but we can't afford to do separate trials. That and he just sense. admitted that he doesn't have any details for the jury <laughs> like openly <laughs> what so, the fuck da uh Zakowski, um apparently stated that he had no case if he couldn't treat them as one entity so why would you go and prosecute this case in the in the first place if you don't have a case without them all being combined, it doesn't make any sense. If you can separate them, then how does that, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. No. And why would the judge go for this? I don't know. Since there was no witnesses or any actual evidence, the prosecution based their case on circumstantial evidence and hearsay, which is in the making of an unjust and gratuitous case. The attorneys of the defendants thought the case was eventually going to be dropped. However, that didn't happen. As a result, rather than collaborating during the combined trial, each attorney attempted to place distance between their clients and the other five men. Like, what the Um, fuck? Their strategy sucked. They, I don't know why they didn't decide to join forces and see like where does this line up with this where were you this night where you know is this do you have alibis here do you have alibis there like how does that you're all jumbled up you're you're handing this to the prosecution 
why would you not just get your story straight and all say it at the same time, the same trial, create some cohesiveness so that at least like you guys make some fucking sense. That's why you can't have six different lawyers for six different people on one yeah. trial. It doesn't make any sense. There should have been like a, like a team for all of them. Yeah. Which is what they should have done. Like, I don't get it. Yeah. So in 2001, Michael Pisowski was exonerated. A total of five federal judges had essentially graded the jury that was on his trial as unreasonable and irrational and charged it with failing its duty, which is exactly right. This was proven in a 2007 statement by a juror who stated it is, quote, it is too much to process and too easy to just make the same decision for all of the defendants, end quote. Sir, that is not what you should do when you go on a jury. Like that is just not just about convenience and it being easy for you. This is a person's life. What are you talking about? Right. So Dale Baston was granted parole in 2017 and placed in an assistant living facility where he died in 2018. So he literally died a year after he was released. Michael Johnson was granted parole in 2019. Michael Hearn was granted parole in 2018. And Ray Moore was granted parole in 2019. To this day, not one of the Munfield six has ever admitted to having anything to do with the death of Tom Munfields. These former blue collar mill workers had no prior convictions for any violent acts whatsoever. Several of them only knew of each other by their face alone, meaning that they had no motive to join forces in committing such a heinous crime. And they just didn't really know each other besides passing glances. Nonetheless, they have refused repeatedly to implicate either themselves or any of the others, even rejecting sweetheart pleas um, deals in the process of maintaining their innocence. And let me define a sweetheart deal for those who don't know what that is. It is an agreement of any type that generally consists of one party presenting another party with a proposal so attractive and potentially lucrative that it's difficult to turn down. They tend to be secretive and controversial as well. Mm -hmm. In many cases, they can be unethical and disadvantage those not privy to it. So it's just basically helping that one person out and making that person turn on the rest. Yeah. Keith was seen by a parole commissioner, uh, March of this year, and the parole commissioner determined that Keith's conduct and programming requirements, including risk reduction, time served, and release plan requirements remain unmet. <laughs> the commissioner recommended parole be denied and an eight-month defer be given, so he's still in there. The commissioner did recommend lowering Keith's security level, meaning he could move to a different prison so that's oh, the break that's that he got nice so back during the trial in 1995 headlines like guilty 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 and witness kutska suspected munfields 
uh, were splashed across newspapers, which then incited the public to form bad opinions of the six men, even with the trial having as much holes as Swiss cheese. They just came at them hard. And the people of the community that followed the story were quoted stating, quote, best place for this evil monster is prison or whatever happens to Tom, same for this evil monster. And quote, only way he should be leaving prison is in a body bag, no parole for any reason. And quote, and quote, let him rot. They killed that poor man over BS. Fuck all of them, end quote. So they really had the community up in arms about them paying the price when nobody to this day truly knows what actually happened to Tom. Um, It just truly, if they did not do it and with everything that was presented, it seems like they did not. It just truly ruined their lives. And we still truly don't know what Tom, what happened to Tom which is the most unfortunate part. So if you'd like to go on a deeper dive, since this episode is just kind of scratching the surface, there is a book out called Reclaiming Lives, Pursuing Justice for Six Innocent Men by Joan Trepa. And her website will be in the show notes as well. And that is the story of Tom Munfields and the Munfiles Six. Munfields. Great job. Thank you. Do you want to know how I found out about this story? How? So where I used to work, um, it's property management. So um, some of my coworkers were cleaning out this area in one of the apartments and they found this 1995 news article still intact. And it had this, this headline of, um, of the story and I I read it and I was like holy shit this is crazy honestly everything on that first page of that newspaper was like murder and this and (laughs) boy scout missing and I'm like oh my god like shit was so dramatic yeah it really was so yeah that's how I found it great that's interesting thank you all right Okay, today I'm going to discuss some unsolved murders and missing persons cases from the Menominee Reservation. Oh, I like it. Thanks. All my sources today are WebSleuth, NativeNewsOnline.net, WBAY.com, WisconsinLife.org, Uncovered.com, Persons, Over five years ago, he disappeared on June 4th of 2017. He was last seen by an officer riding his ATV in the Long Marsh area on the reservation. He 
was wearing shorts and shoes, but he had left without a shirt because and five days later, the police, tribal police found his ATV with his cell phone. Okay. And that's, no, nobody's seen him at all. Suspicious? Yeah, so he's just gone. He was 5'9", 120 pounds in 2017 with brown eyes and black hair. He has an eagle tattoo on the back of his neck, a tattoo that says Menominee across his shoulders, and the words Native Pride on one of his calves. And the Menominee tribe is offering a $5,000 reward for any information on his case. That's really all the information there is on his case right there. That's awful. How is there not more? how people vanish but me neither that's so scary it really is no sight of him ever again and then the next story is uh, that of caitlin kelly caitlin was 22 years old when she disappeared in shano in the early morning hours of june 17th police believe she was picked up while she was walking on County Highway VB near Silver Canoe Road in the Menominee Indian Reservation at 10.30 at night on the night of June 16th and then given a ride home to Shawano where she lives. So Caitlin was about five foot two, so little tiny like you. Yup, yup. <laughs> 140 pounds with brown eyes and brown hair. She was wearing a gray t-shirt, black swimsuit style top, denim shorts, and black flip-flops when she was last seen. And there is a still image captured from security footage from when she was leaving the reservation. And people believe, like I said, she was getting her ride home to Shano, which was about eight miles away where she lived. And sometime that night, she made a, she did make it home. But she made a Facebook post about an unknown black SUV parked near her apartment. Ooh. And she was last seen at her apartment sometime between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. Okay. And after Caitlin didn't check in with her family, her mom became really worried because that wasn't normal for her. And she had a little baby son. Oh, no. So her mom was like, because she hasn't checked on her kid. She hasn't came home. Nobody knows where she is. So she reported her missing to the Menominee Tribal Police. Mm -hmm. And multiple searches were conducted in conjunction with the FBI. I don't know if people know, but on tribal lands, the FBI also has jurisdiction. The state does not. So the FBI will come in and help. So they came in. To help look for her, her family was doing searches. There was flyers everywhere. They they were trying so hard to find her, but none of this yielded any evidence of where she went. But nearly a year later, on March seventeenth of twenty twenty one, human remains were found on the reservation, and an autopsy was conducted. And authorities did identify Caitlin on March twenty first of twenty twenty one. Mm. and her case still remains unsolved but her family and community 
are continuing to share her story and those of other indigenous persons whose cases remain unsolved. And then at the state level, the task force has been formed. Um, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Task Force was formed by our state government. Mm -hmm. so they work on this also. And the Menominee Tribal Police continue to ask the public to come forward with any information relating to her case. And there's a $5,000 cash reward for any information in her case as well. And then the next one is a little bit older one. This was for Lisa Lynn Ninham. She was last seen in Kashino, Wisconsin on the Menominee Indian Reservation on November 1st, 1980. And she's never been heard from again. Few details are available in her case. She was just there and gone like lions. Mm. She's never been found. Nobody knows where she went. Oh God. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if people are familiar, but it's not a huge area. Yeah, I'm not a hundred percent on how big it is. Yeah. Um, but when we do our posts, I can put like a map so that everybody can see. Yeah, it's like, and it's I guess the thing is that there's a lot of water and a lot of woods. Mm -hmm. so that does make it easier to make people disappear. Right, right. Because it's hard to search. But it still seems crazy that there's so many people from such a small population that have disappeared or been murdered. Right, yeah. Ugh. Then I have um, Ray Elaine, I'm probably going to say her last name wrong, um, Tordalot. She was 18 years old when she was murdered on October 15th of 1986. Uh, she was attending a birthday party in Kashina with five of her friends. And she disappeared after the party. She was last seen right around midnight that night, not very far from her home. At one point during the party, she announced she wanted to go home. And someone gave her a ride. But when they arrived at her home, she didn't want to get out of the car, the driver told the police. So they just drove around Kashina for a while and then returned to the party. But nobody at the party recalled the exact time she returned and no one noticed when she left for the second time. But they did see her there again. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, she had left. Whatever reason she didn't want to be there, she left, but then she didn't want to go home either. Yeah, what? So it feels like something was going on. Yeah. It was making her uncomfortable. Yeah. And she's like tribal royalty. She's like a like the princess or like her, oh. I think her dad was the chief. Oh. At one point. Yeah. I just know they called her like a princess of the tribe. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, it's so sad. So the FBI and tribal police reward posters indicate that she was last in a vehicle with two people when she was seen near the Tamau Overlook and she was reported missing the next day. Investigators initially said they weren't sure if they were investigating a crime, which happens a lot when people disappear. When you're an adult, they yeah. might think you just left. Mm -hmm. So they weren't sure that anything had really happened at first. 
But they didn't, this is an interesting tidbit, they didn't list the help of a psychic from Wausau, the Wausau oh. area, weeks after her disappearance. Okay. So I guess they were taking it seriously at that point. Sure. And at one point, uh, former police chief Robert Summers told told reporters that the police had a suspect in mind, but that they lacked evidence to make an arrest, and they never said who the suspect was. Okay. But, um, fortunately, at least her body was found on April 9th. Uh, 1987, about six months after her disappearance, her badly decomposed body was found. Oh. And it was found ne- near that overlook where she was last known to be at. That's awful. So did the... It seems like it was somebody that she knows. Did the um the psychic reveal anything or say anything that... No. I don't know. It was just like a random fact in there that they talked to a psychic. So, I don't know if the psychic helped lead them there. Right. Maybe. Okay. Or said, like, no, she's dead. You need to help look for her. Oh, God. That's so awful. And anyone that has any information about her death or about any of these other missing persons are asked to call the tribal police. And we can put that number in the show notes. Yep. These sure. cases are also being looked into by the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Task Force. And their goal is to help fight the abduction, homicide, violence, and trafficking of Indigenous women in Wisconsin. They plan to focus on examining the factors that contribute to missing and murdered Indigenous women and the response from social service organizations, understanding the roles federal, state, and tribal jurisdictions play and improving and implementing robust data collection and reporting methods. So one of the big things that goes on is that there isn't really a database indicating how many of these women are missing. It's just sporadic. They're not keeping track. So they have been tasked with like looking, hey, how many people are missing from this area and this area and this area? Is there a pattern? Exactly. Like, how could you not keep track of that at the volume of which it's happening? I don't know, because until 2021, or yeah, I think it was 2021 when they made the task force. Until then, we didn't even have a task force. That is just ludicrous. Yeah. Now they also have expanded. So they're they're not only looking into missing women, they're also looking into any indigenous and native persons, regardless of their gender. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about women anymore because it clearly isn't just a woman problem. Right. Yeah. Men are going missing and getting murdered as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And according to a WPR news story, violence against native women is often underreported. And missing cases don't always make it into a national database. And the research also shows that Indigenous women are three times more likely to be murdered than white women. I just don't understand why it's just such a higher percentage for Indigenous women. I don't understand it. It has a lot to do with 
just the patriarchal nature of America and like the whole white power dynamic that's been created, I think. Mm hmm Yeah. And how people just get away with that more than any other type of murder of people. Right. And in, in Wisconsin, I don't know, like, I don't know what's going on in the cases in Wisconsin, but I know in other cases, it's also around areas where there's a lot of men working. Yeah. So when there's camps with all these men working and some of them may view Native American women to be like property. And they're right. Just, and like they're disposable. They just don't care. I think the disposable or like that they are less cared for, less yeah. documented of going missing, which is clearly true, unfortunately. Yeah. Um yeah. makes them think they're more vulnerable and more of a target I think um I definitely think so which is so unfortunate because a it's true not that they're 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 targets but mm -hmm. the way that we have everything set up that it, it does make them more vulnerable because there isn't any tracking of the statistics on how this is happening, why this is happening, where this is happening, like nothing is documented. Right. And it's just a shame. Yeah, because I happened to stumble upon cases while looking through the missing persons database. I happened to notice a pattern yep. of people missing, but there was no way for me to search and say people missing from the Menominee Indian Reservation. There's no like, special area where you can do that yep I totally agree when I was researching that um I did a case on the murdered and missing indigenous women uh it was really hard to find yeah. multiple news outlets covering this and if anything it was more from the actual um like reservation um websites or yeah. you know outlets um putting it out themselves that don't have a lot of outreach and right. that don't have a lot of um I, I want to say publicity to push mm -hmm. it out there more which yeah, is it's like smaller publications and not mainstream media mm -hmm. so the information is there but if you're not looking for it you're never going to see it right and people aren't going to look for it if they don't want to be confronted with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we have no problem confronting people with this information. So we will no. keep confronting. <laughs> <laughs> that is our specialty. <laughs> yes, it is. All right. Oh, so. Well, that was excellent. Thank you for bringing you. that to light. Um, it's super important that we do these types of cases that are not out there as much as the ones that we see every every other week like that Gabby one you know yeah for every Definitely. Gabby there is a uh indigenous woman 10 mm -hmm. 30 of them you know yeah yeah so
So if people have cases like this that have not gotten any reach, any publicity, anybody talking about it, and Mm -hmm. you need, even if you have very little details and you just need, you know, us to do a little snippet and call attention to it, just let us know. Exactly. We are more than happy to talk about um, any case because all cases are important. Does it matter? Yes. Yeah. We don't care about race, gender, sexuality, yeah, addictions, anything like we don't care. Everybody is valuable to us. So. Yeah. We're, it's all on the, t- on the table and there is no judgment from us. So no. yeah, we can share on social, we can share on the podcast, whatever we can do to help out. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're here for. Yeah. Well, good job. Thank you. (laughs) So I want to wish everybody that is celebrating Christmas a Merry Christmas. Um, Happy holidays to the people that aren't. Um, Happy Hanukkah. Is that happy goes with Hanukkah, right? Yeah, I think so. Happy Hanukkah. (laughs) Um, Hopefully we don't get buried in a blizzard. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not prepared for that mentally. Um, So we're just going to take it, I guess, this crazy winter storm that's going to come. The forecasters yesterday were like, there may be a terrible blizzard and you will not be able to see the roads. Oh, great. (laughs) But it might miss us. How and I was like, that... how are you getting paid for this? <laughs> <laughs> it may or may not hit us, but you will not be able to see. And if you do see, that means it didn't come. <laughs> That's essentially what they're saying. <laughs> Just panic the entire state. Schools are like, I think we're closing. Maybe we're not closing. I don't know. Right. We're all in a frenzy. <laughs> we're all in a frenzy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh. Well, um... I'm going to be unaffected either way because I don't leave the house. <laughs> I don't plan on leaving the house either. I'm going to go get groceries and then I'm not leaving the house. Yeah, make sure to stock up, people. Yeah. All right. We will be back next week. We will be back. We love you. Yay. We do. Bye. Bye. All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at allthesinsofwi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't Don't forget, forget, we we love you. you.